So guys, this is the day. I mean, like for what a, a Super Bowl would be to the, to the NFL, Resurrection Sunday is to Christianity. This is the day where we get a little rowdy. I mean, we're rowdy anyways, right? I mean, you know, and, and I, just got, I just got the word that we were around 474 people here in this house today. Woo-hoo-hoo! So it's like, you know, you start thinking about like, hey, all right, we got 474 misfits that are rowdy, loving the Lord. So I love it, man. So I'm excited about this. Um, so today, uh, today we're going to talk about empty life or an empty grave. And, and as you, you begin to think about Resurrection Sunday... And I start thinking about what all this means. Today, um, I'm, I'm preaching a little bit differently than I, I have in the past. I really want to make sure that today, when, when we leave this place, we're going to be building a case for the empty tube. And I want to give facts, and I want to give evidence. So here's, um, here's uh, three facts that I'm going to give you today. Fact number one, Jesus was a real historical figure. Jesus was real. Fact. That's a fact. No one can dispute it. You can be an atheist all day long, but you cannot dispute that Jesus was real living person. Fact number two, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. Fact. You can't take that away. That is a fact. Fact number three, the best one yet. On that day, the tomb was found empty. Give God some praise. The tomb was empty. It's a fact. It's a fact. So what I wanted to also do is I want to begin to, what we're all doing is this. The tomb was empty. That's a fact. You're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide what you believe concerning the empty tomb. You're going to have to come to a point of whether you believe it was a resurrection or something else. I want to tell you something about faith, though. Faith is being persuaded to believe something you cannot prove. Now, I can prove Christ is risen, but I can't prove it to you. I can prove it because I'm going to show you how that works. But being persuaded to believe something you cannot prove or see or touch to know something without being able to prove it. But here's the deal, when you when when you place your faith in Christ, then then, all right? Then you receive, you receive your proof. He is who he says he is. You won't have your proof until you've placed your faith. You following me? I want to share this passage out of Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this. This is, this is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after. Everybody say after. After. After you heard the word. You see, the, the, the faith in Christ doesn't come until after. In him you have trusted. After you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also having Believed. Having is a past tense. It's something that you have done. So it's having believed, you were then sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise, who is the guarantee. See, you don't have your guarantee until you have the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit until you've believed. You don't believe until you've heard. That's how it works. So here's the thing. Is all I can do today is I can give you evidence 
I can give you evidence of what led me to believe. So we're going to build a case. A case for the empty tomb. Evidence is available information indicated whether a belief is true or valid. So what I'm going to be do and I'm going to, to begin to do today is to share with you some different things. And, and the perspective that I often use is this. If somebody was dealing with false information and they were going to try to start a cult on false information, how would they go about it? They definitely wouldn't have went about it the way that the disciples did. And I'm going to show you how that all fits in and how that works. First thing I do want to do is I want to show you Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. These are the accounts of the Gospels. Now, one of the things that I want you to know is that I try really hard not to call the Bible a book. Do you know why I try not? I still do. I mess up all the time. But the reason why I don't want to call it a book is because there's no other book on this planet that can compare. Nothing can compare to the Bible. You take the next oldest religious book, the Quran, doesn't hold anything to the Bible. One author over 15 years. But the Bible, 1,500 years. 40 different people writing. 1,500 years. I'll get to that in a little bit. But here's the four. So these four individuals were the ones who recorded an account, a biography of Jesus' life. One of the things... We look at the dates. They're all at different dates. We see that Mark was first. One of the things about Mark, he was Jewish. He, we, one thing that we know, a fact that we know about Mark is that he, he, he deserted Paul on the first missionary trip and actually was the, the cause that Paul and Barnabas splitted paths in the second missionary trip. We know that he wrote it early on. He was the first one to write the first gospel. It was half the, half the length of all the other gospels, so more people could afford to buy it because back then they didn't just have printing presses and things like that. So you had to pay a scribe to, to, to write down a scroll. So Mark was very highly circulated. But Mark wasn't one of the 12. Matthew was. He was former tax collector, Hated by everyone. What's really interesting about um, Matthew, and, and as, as he left his tax booth and followed Christ, uh, it's amazing how he, he wrote this. He wrote this like I would imagine a tax collector writing. He writes it as like a systematic theology. Systematic theology is like everything has a column. Right? And every, you know, you have all these topics and everything that deals with this topic and everything that deals with this topic. And Matthew has a systematic approach. He's not worried about the timeline. If you read Matthew and then you turn around and read Luke, they look differently because they were focused on two different aspects. And so what Matthew was doing is he's putting down, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, all of the teachings of Jesus are thrown right there in three chapters. Then he talks about 8 and 9, the healings of Christ, and then he starts dealing with the Pharisees and then his parables. Everything has a nice orderly column. So if you like things to be very orderly and detailed, that's the gospel you're going to be reading. Now Luke, on the other hand, he wasn't Jewish at all. He was a Greek. He was a physician. He was known to have traveled with Paul. He actually wrote the, the, his account of the, the gospel of Jesus actually for one of his friends. Can you imagine writing an entire, scribing out, writing an entire story for a friend because you cared about their salvation. Isn't that pretty remarkable? 
He had a high attention to the details of time. What was the timeline? When you go through Luke, you see the Sermon on the Mount scattered throughout because Jesus taught different things in different towns, and so his was more of a time, uh, a timeline, a, a crunch during that way. And then the last, but not the least, is John, the last one to write. He was one of the twelve. In fact, not only one of the twelve, but he was one of the closest disciples. He was one of the three. And what's really cool is that he really didn't care about the details of those things, and he didn't really care about the timeline as much. What he cared about is that you knew who Jesus was. When you read John, he talks about the identity of who Jesus is. All the I am statements where Jesus said, I am the bread of the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. Every time Jesus would talk about who he was, John was writing it down, making sure that it was in the gospel of John. They're all uniquely different. They're all telling the same story I always get kind of chuckled up when people come up and especially people who don't believe and they're like man there's so many discrepancies in the gospels and I'm like I love it because they're all telling the same story from different times they didn't all write them together and every one of them is telling the same story I don't struggle that John tells his perspective different have you have you ever seen a fight <laughs> if you were in the middle of a fight I always I was only in one fight in my entire life, I think I was in fifth grade. I don't remember much of it, but I was doing this. <laughs> now I just kind of go through, I, I make sure that I have guys that are bigger than me around me, and I'm like, you want to go? Come here, Mike. <laughs> Pastor Darrell, come on. Now, you, you want to continue this conversation? There's nothing between us but air and opportunity. I got about 30 seconds left. Let's go. So, you know, but, but you know, in a, in a fight, there's the one, one perspective, the one throwing the punch, and the other perspective of seeing it. They're seeing two different things. And then there's a perspective of the guys on the side going, oh, you know? So all these different perspectives, the same thing. Why is the accounts of the gospel any different? Not everybody was in the inner room with Jesus. John was, Matthew wasn't. But not everybody was one of the 12 either. See, that's what makes this so unique, is that you can have writings from 55 all the way to 90, and they're all telling the same story. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that remarkable? So, if the disciples were trying to establish a cult on false information, the first thing that I'm going to tell you is they would have only used Jews to write the Gospels. See you, Luke. There's no way that a Jewish man would have let a Greek Gentile write anything in the Bible. No, your account's not good enough. Maybe have a, have a, have a Jewish man write it. But here's the thing is, is what you're going to find over and over and over is that the disciples cared about one thing. They cared about the truth. They cared about what was true. They didn't care if a Greek wrote it. Write it. They cared about truth because we know that when you know the truth, it's the truth that sets you. There we go. Come on. All right. The second thing is the disciples, they would have made sure every detail was completely uniform. Now, I, I threw in here something that I want to make sure that when we're talking about the Bible, it's really awesome because it's 40 different authors. Oh, and now, I, when I say authors, I'm talking about the people who are, who are writing it out. I love this. Jesus didn't write an autobiography. He didn't write down his own life. He allowed the disciples to do a biography of his life. 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. They wrote these words, and we have these words today. They were written over a span of 1,500 years, over different walks of life. You had King David all the way to a prisoner Paul in jail writing. He's in jail writing letters that we quote all the time. Isn't that remarkable? We have people who were rich, and we have people who were poor. We have slaves, we have women, we had all different kinds of people who were talked about in the Bible. There wasn't like only for the rich and only for the poor, it was everybody. And they all agreed on God. Every atheist, Josh McDowell, was a brilliant atheist And he set out and goes, I'm going to prove the Bible wrong. He wrote a book that was called Evidence Demands a Verdict, and he got saved writing it. (laughs) Lee Strobel says he was was um, an investigative uh, reporter, and he set out to prove Christianity wrong. And he basically put it, wrote a book called A Case for Christ. But he was writing it in a way that he put Christ on the stand and he was going to prove Christianity wrong because his wife got saved. He didn't like that his wife got saved. Her life changed. He doesn't want that change. He didn't want another man in the life, right? So he didn't want any of that. And he says, you know what? I'm going to prove it all wrong. He gets saved. (laughs) That's what truth does. It saves you. So one of the things that they would have done if they were making a cult, if the disciples were ensuring to make it a cult, this is what they would have done. They would have made sure that all the gospels said exactly the same thing. I'm going to show you, just so, as we're going to walk through some of these passages in Matthew, as evening approached, this is after Jesus was crucified, he's dead on the cross. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate, can't read that, ordered, yep, there we go, ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth. That's Matthew's Matthew's perspective. Here comes Mark. It was preparation day. That's that's basically saying it was Friday. Jesus was, was crucified on a Friday. So evening was approaching. Same guy, right? Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. This is a new, a new piece of information that the other one did not have. He was a part of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now we get Luke. Let's get the Greek in here. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. Now there's two accounts that had council. One did not. And an upright man who had not consented to their decision and their action. He was not along with the the rest of the council that wanted to crucify Jesus. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea. So there's all connection there. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now, John, later, Joseph of Arimathea. So every account has Joseph, right? Now, here's an... I highlighted... A new aspect here. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now this is pretty remarkable when you start thinking about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was witness to, Jesus witnessed to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus did not understand how the kingdom of God worked. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Somewhere between John chapter 3 and John chapter 19, he was born again. That's pretty awesome. 
Now, does that make all the other Gospels wrong, or does that make John wrong? No. To me, I look at this, and it doesn't shake my faith one bit, and I could have sat here and said, you know what, I, only, I want to tiptoe around these. That doesn't change nothing. Did you know that Mark was not at the crucifixion of Jesus? Did you know that Matthew was not present at the crucifixion of Jesus? He was hiding. He was scared. Did you know that Luke was not at the crucifixion? In fact, if you want to know about it, there was only one disciple who went to the crucifixion, and his name was John. Who do you think would have the most accurate report? The man that was there. Does that make the other guys wrong? No. They just didn't know all the details because they were indoors. Not present. Well, the third thing that these disciples would do if they were going to do a cult, they would make, they would not have used the testimony of women. This is not a sexist moment, but what I want you to understand is that in that culture, women did not have a voice. In the first century, women did not have a voice. In fact, women were, you were lucky as a woman, you were lucky if your husband viewed you above the slaves that he owned. That's what I want you to understand is that at that time, Women did not have rights. They were more of a possession to the husband than anything else. Women were not permitted to go to a courtroom and testify. They were always told to be silent. You be quiet, you be quiet, you be quiet. So if you were in a courtroom, you could not use the testimony of a woman. It was not credible. And yet, what did the disciples do? They wrote down the truth. It was the women who found the tomb empty. They didn't care. If she saw the empty tomb, I'm right. See, here's the thing is if they were out to set up a cult, if they were out to lie to the world, they would not have used women. Would not. That, was a, that would have been the worst mistake that they would have made the whole time. Matthew, all the disciples forsook him. All the men had ran off in hiding. Mark says the same thing. All of them forsook him and fled. Only John and, and, and a couple of different Marys showed up to the crucifixion, stayed there through the crucifixion, went back on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion to prepare his body. When they showed up, the tomb was open. The tomb was empty. They went back. So the disciples, if they were trying to start something false, they would not have used women's testimony. So here's the testimony that Matthew gives. Now, after the Sabbath, Saturday is the Sabbath, this is the Sunday, this after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Okay? They're the ones that came to see the tomb. For an angel of the Lord appeared, or descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him, became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here! <laughs> for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, ran to bring the disciples the word. That would have been omitted. That would have been omitted. They would have changed it up. They would not have used, if they were starting a cult, they were starting something false, they would not have, made, they would not have used the woman's testimony. 
Mark says very similar. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices. So it talks about the same thing. So the same women, they came. And why I'm putting all of these scriptures up here is I want you to see for yourself. So they went out quickly. Again, Luke, no different. Now the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them. So here's the women. This is a women. It wasn't men, it was women. They found the stone. Mary, the mother of James. Mary Magdalene, Joanna. So here it is. So these reports are showing you that women were the ones who went to the tomb. The men, I'm, I'm just going to be completely frank, they were hiding, terrified. They had followed and walked with Jesus, and Jesus was crucified, and they're like, I don't want to be crucified. And they were hiding. John, same thing. First day of the week. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Each account, every, so what's amazing is you see the continuity of, of, of all these gospel writers. Every one of them, there's not a record that outside of Matthew and John that any of them really ran together. They were, they were part of the twelve, the others were not. Well, I will tell you this. The fourth thing is they would have tried to have had, they would have fixed, fixed the case for the empty tomb. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there was a lot of different rumors that were circling around during the early first century. Uh, and I'm just going to briefly share a couple of them. But the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin worked very, very, very hard to stop. Christianity. For just a moment, look around. Just look around. <laughs> they didn't do a very good job. <laughs> they didn't do a very good job at all. Isn't that remarkable? I don't want to think about this. They did everything that they could to stop Jesus, but they couldn't. They couldn't. You see, those of you who have believed in Jesus, that you have placed your faith into Jesus, something happened inside of you as we read earlier, that Holy Spirit sealing your heart. You knew, you knew that you knew that you knew that Jesus was real, that He really died on the cross, that He forgave you of your sins. You knew it. There was no turning you back. Somebody else says, I don't get why you believe. Because you haven't believed yet. But when you believe, you'll know why we believe. Come on, right? So the first, the first little uh, rumor that was passed around was they used false witnesses, okay? So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had used false witnesses, right? They used false witnesses in the case uh, against Christ. Matthew 26, the chief priests and elders, all the council sought false testimony. They, they, in fact, it was recorded that the testimonies were so bad that they had to throw them out because they weren't even consistent. Another thing in Mark chapter 14, it says, Now the chief priests, all the same, the same, same thing, sought testimony against them to put them to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against them, but their testimonies did not agree. They weren't even, they didn't even work. Now the second thing that 
another rumor that came around was they claimed to be the, uh, that the disciples stole the body. Now, I, here's the thing is that's the one that circulated the most. You guys can see the passage behind me. But here's the thing. The Pharisees did such a, a job to ensure that Jesus' body wouldn't be stolen. They actually made it to where it was impossible. So they went to Pilate. And when they went to Pilate, they said, hey, they're going to, you know, um, they're going to, to try to steal this body. So, the Pilate then gave them permission. He said, go ahead, take a guard with you and seal the tomb. So what the sealing of the tomb did, you've heard about the tomb being sold, they would, they would melt wax over the cracks so that if it was moved, you would know that it was moved. Right? So what they did is they ensured that if anything was tampered, it would be known. And then Pilate sent with them a guard. Now you're talking about a soldier trained, right? So here are Roman guards, there were two of them, sent to guard the tomb. Let me ask you, where were the, where were the disciples during this time? Where were they? They had deserted Jesus. They ran off. They were afraid. They were scared. So you think they're going to come out of hiding now? Now that there is a, a, a guarded soldiers in front of the tomb? Think about it. Those soldiers, those Roman soldiers, if they were to fail here, they would have been executed for their lack of ability. They would have been killed if they let the disciples take off of the body. Trained soldiers against the fishermen. Who do you think is going to win? And a tax collector. He didn't even, he, his hands were soft. They didn't even work, you know, you know, you know, ma'am, I'm going to shut up right now. Stop, stop talking, stop talking, stop talking, stop. So what happened is when the, when the body was gone, the Pharisees, the, the priests, they paid off the guards to lie about how the body was taken. They also tried to claim that <laughs> they went to the wrong tomb. Sometimes you're like, man, uh, you guys are really grasping for some straws here because your, your excuses are getting worse as they go along. Do you think that Joseph of Arimathea, that was his personal tomb. Do you think he doesn't know where it is? And the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, guess what? They were the ones who went and sealed the tomb. They didn't know where it was either. Everybody's confused. Yeah, that one, that one ain't going to work. Now the last one, they claim that Jesus wasn't actually dead. So I'm going gonna to give you some facts. Jesus received 39 lashes of a whip. A cat of nine tails. It, it was said that 40 would kill a man. So he had 1 minus 40, which is 39. Jesus was nailed to a cross. His wrists and his ankles. If you think about your ankles being nailed to a cross... You'd have all kinds of ligament damage. How many of you do very good when you step on a nail walking on just a little tiny baby nail? I'm not talking about a spike, a Roman spike. I'm talking about a little nail. Parents, how do you do when you step on a Lego? Come on, right? You know what I'm talking about. A Lego, you're like, oh, oh, oh. now step on two Legos. And you're like, oh. Well, now here's the deal. He had two spikes. He had spikes written to both of his feet. You think he's walking around saying, hey, how's it going? Think about this. It doesn't even make any common sense. Fact, Jesus was pierced and assigned by a Roman spear. For them to be saying that Jesus was walking around 
greeting people after those three facts? So common sense would say when the guard sealed the tomb, if he was still alive in the tomb, that wax would have sealed it and he would have ran out of oxygen at some point. Common sense number two, medically speaking, any man with those injuries isn't walking around hugging people. Common sense number three, if Jesus was walking around with those kind of injuries, he would have looked like a character off The Walking Dead. Come on, right? Wouldn't he? And every gospel account... Okay, so I'm going to show you the gospel account. So in Matthew 28, they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran. Now here, Jesus met them. Rejoice. They came and held on to his feet and worshipped him. Do you think they would have came and held on to his feet and worshipped him if he would have had blood just everywhere all over the place looking like he was crawling around like, a, like he was a dead man walking? Would you think that they would do? No. Same thing in Luke. Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not even know him. If you would have seen all the marks and all of the scratches and all of the cuts and the bruises and the blood. John, same way. Same thing. Peace to you. He was was actually traveling with them. Now this is what's really amazing. In, In John's account here, he tells a special little insight. Guys, I am pretty close to the end, so if you're getting tired, just... I'll just say, in conclusion, that gives me another 10 minutes. So, this is a remarkable. So, you guys all remember the, you guys remember hearing about doubting Thomas, right? So, Jesus had appeared to all the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, we have seen the Lord. So, all the other disciples are on board. They're ready to go. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and put hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. You know, there's a lot of people walking around with those kind of excuses saying, I don't care how much your life has changed. I don't care what the changes I see in you. I will not believe. Just like Thomas. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas with him. Jesus came to the doors. Came, he came the doors look being shut. Hey, I thought the doors were locked. Stood in their midst. And he said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Come on, right? Some of us sitting here today have been unbelieving for a long time. Maybe today's the day that you need to start believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Come on, come on, that's you, that's you. He says, he says, man, it took you, Thomas, it took you putting your hands in my side and in my hands to believe, but blessed, blessed is to be made happy. It's the Greek word makarios, and it means to be made happy by the extension of another. And what Jesus is saying is, man, happy are those who believe and didn't need to see. Woo! 
In the very next verses, John then says this about his own gospel. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you, and he's talking to you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book of John. Well, I I can't talk about an empty tomb without throwing a little bit of Paul in here. (laughs) Fact remains, the tomb was found empty. Report remains, over 500 people claimed to have seen Christ. You see, not just the disciples. The, 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 The priests were trying to shut Christianity down. And they were so worried about the 12, right? They forgot that a whole lot of other people saw Jesus. There were over 500, look. Here, it's all, it's in the scripture. For I delivered you, first of all, this is Paul writing, which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Christ died for your sins. That he was buried in a tomb, right? He was buried. And that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by five hundred brethren all at once. You see, that's how it kept going, and it kept going, and it kept going, and that's why it's still going today. <laughs> what do you do with that many witnesses? What, what, you know, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are the priests and the scribes going to do now? What are you going to do when there's, there's that many witnesses? What do you do when the disciples who were hiding in fear came out of their hiding places, not afraid to die anymore. What do you do when now these 12 disciples are telling everybody about a risen Savior? What do you do when you have no solid evidence against an empty tomb? Maybe it's time to start believing. Maybe it's time to try something different. You know, a lot of times I, I see people and they're like, man, they talk about how their life isn't working and, and how they're unhappy inside. Well, guess what? God is your creator. He created you. And the purpose that you were created for is to worship Him. And your happiest moments are when you are worshiping Him. Your happiest moments are when you're bringing glory to God. Your happiest, the most happy times in your entire life is when you're serving the King of all kings. So today, I ask that you would bow your heads. As the worship team is going to begin to make their ways back up here. I know a lot of people who have made their start of faith. on the greatest day of celebration. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. The Gospel is very, very clear. Jesus died for your sins. That doesn't mean that we continue to live in our sins. It means that He paid the ultimate price for our sins. 
You see, every single one of us in this room, we all have something in common. We all need to be forgiven. We all need forgiveness. Jesus paid on that cross for your sins, for my sins, for all of humanity's sins. He was buried in a tomb. See, the greatest news that we have is that He rose from the dead. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time sitting in this room. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then He did not conquer death. Therefore, we will die in our sin. But Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered hell. He conquered death. All for you. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. If there is anybody here today, you don't worry about anybody else. This is just... Every one of you needs to ask yourself this question. You don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about what other people do, but this is yours. This is your moment. This is your time. If there's anybody here today who says, you know what, I haven't placed my faith in Jesus. I've been skeptical. I've held back my faith. But today, I want to place my faith in Him. If that is you, Stand up right where you are with no shame, no fear. Don't worry about anybody else. But if today is the day that you say, today, I stand. I place my faith completely in Christ. I want to accept Christ as my Savior, my Lord. I know that I need forgiveness. And I ask him to come into my life. Is that, if that's you, stand up. Don't worry about anybody else. Praise the Lord. Jesus said that those who would confess me before men, I'll confess before the Father. The reality is that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. So repeat this. And all the whole family, we're all going to pray with you. Everybody's going to pray together. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you were buried in a tomb for three days. And I believe that on that third day you rose. I want you to become the Lord of my life. I want you to take over. I give you my life. Forgive me of all my sin. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Come into my heart.
Live your life through me. Keep your heads bowed. If you prayed that prayer today and you gave your life to Jesus, I want you to be even more bold. I want you to come forward. You're a part of this family. You're a part of the family of God. Don't be afraid. Come on. Come on up.